Do you want to sharpen your skills as a writer or wish you knew a better way to approach your story? Welcome to The Author's Journey, a book club for writers. Join us each week as we read books on writing by the world's best storytellers so you can master your craft and achieve more. And now, here's your host, Jason Hamilton. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Author's Journey, a book club for writers. We are getting into section two of David Farland's Million Dollar Outlines. I hope you enjoyed this section. I certainly did. Very interesting, very illuminating, kind of a crash course in just how to write a novel in general, put into bite-sized chunks. So let's dive right into it. David starts out by saying that in this section, we will study what the parts of a story are so that you will understand what you need to do in order to create a fulfilling tale. So he kind of divides the elements of story into four broad categories and then into a number of smaller categories that fit within those broad categories. I found this to be a little confusing. And in a lot of ways, I thought he was using other words for the main words that most people use, like plot, character, and setting. I think most people would say that the main building blocks of a story are plot, character, and setting. Maybe theme, maybe conflict. Those things kind of have a different relationship with plot, character, and setting. But he goes in and calls it milieu, which is basically the setting and character, which we, of course, know character conflict. We know conflict. And I think conflict is also he kind of lumps that together in with plot since conflict is often what what defines the plot. And then he had one here that I like that I don't always hear. And that's what he calls the treatment. Now, this is basically the part of your story, the, the actual words of your story, the prose, the quality of the writing itself so this is things like your dialogue your prose if you've got if you're writing poetry things like that um your own style your own writing style and that's something i think is often overlooked when talking about fiction uh, is focusing on that and yet it's one of the areas that i think needs the most work very often anyway moving on he starts by getting into the milieu We've got a section called Brainstorming Your Settings, so let's get into that. He talks about, in mainstream literature, we typically deal with settings that either already exist or that have existed historically. Thus, when you write about about the city of Chicago, it behooves you to do your research. And that's something I found that for most, most contemporary literature or historical literature, you need to do a whole lot of research. Now, when you get to fantasy and science fiction, that tends to be different. Fantasy and science fiction, instead of researching, you have to do a lot of world building. But they're essentially serving the same function. Now, I've written an Arthurian fantasy, and I found out after the fact that this is kind of both. You have to do a lot of world building because it's a fantasy and it's Arthurian, so uh, King Arthur didn't actually exist, not as we think of him. Uh, But it is set in a historical time, and so having to do a whole lot of research was something that I didn't really anticipate doing as a fantasy writer. And I think I maybe have stumbled a little bit with that. Uh, But that's just something to keep in mind. If you're writing historical fantasy, you still have to do a lot of the research in addition to doing the world building. And that's my daughter in the background, just in case you were wondering. Uh, We do live in a studio apartment and she's two months old and uh, doing very well. But Uh, You might hear her from time to time. Anyway, he goes on to reiterate something that we mentioned before 
about setting and how most of the best-selling films transported the viewer to another time and another place, and that's usually common with books as well. Obviously, you can have a lot of contemporary books that are not fantasy, science fiction, that are not historical. How does that transport you to another time and another place? Well, he does get into that, quoting Albert Zuckerman in his book, Writing the Blockbuster Novel. And in that book, he just kind of describes a setting as not just a place to transfer, transport an audience, but transport them to a place that they would like to be. So in this case, he uses the example of Boise, Idaho. Most people aren't that interested in going to Boise, Idaho. So you'd rather go to a place like Paris or Monaco. And it's or perhaps a different lifestyle, like upper class lifestyle, that kind of thing. So people still like to be transported to another time and another place, even if that time and place is something that is technically existing in our world. Anyway, moving on. He also talks about something that I liked, which was repetitive settings. And he says the rule of thumb in Hollywood for big big budget movies says, don't show me the same setting twice. Now, I actually read this uh, somewhere else earlier when I was writing my Fairy Queen series. And in my last book that I wrote, I did have a setting that appears multiple times in the novel. And so I tried to mix it up a little bit, move it from one part of the setting to another part, just kind of in the same area. I also tried varying things like the weather. So it wasn't quite the same place ever at any one point. I think that's hard to do all the time. And while that might be true of Hollywood film, it certainly isn't true of every medium. Television, for example, makes use of the same like six sets over and over and over again. If you have a novel that's, say, a science fiction novel set in a spaceship, you're going to have the bridge of the spaceship or something like that. So it's certainly not a hard and fast rule. And he actually mentions that it's not a hard and fast rule, but it is something to keep in a, in the back of your mind that you want to kind of mix up all of these scenes. If you find that you're kind of just spending most of your time in one or two places, think about ways that you can mix it up if you can, if it's not like essential that you be there. In the case of the spaceship, for example, you might be on the bridge this whole time, but that, you know, it's a spaceship, so it can move around. It can encounter many different obstacles. So while you might be on the bridge, your bridge won't necessarily be in the same place as before. He also talks about making it interesting. And he mentions judging writers of the future where he he says, he says, I can't tell you how many fantasy stories I read that open with the heroes sitting in the common room of an inn. I get to the point where I want to reject them out of hand. And of course, this is kind of cliche, right? And we see it a lot in Dungeons and Dragons campaigns that things just open in a common room of, of an inn or a tavern. That's not very interesting. And it's become cliche. And so... I remember when I was writing my first novel, my editor had me cut back at the beginning a little bit so that it started right when the action started. And I think that's a good rule of thumb. You don't necessarily want to dwell too much in a place unless something is happening because that's what a book is all about. You know, it's it's the it's life with all of the boring parts taken out. So you got to take out those those boring parts. Next, he goes into giving us a few tricks on how to imagine our setting. And the first thing he talks about is how is it going to affect our character? Obviously, a character grows out of setting to a certain extent. They're going to have a religious or philosophical background. 
that's based in the area where they live, but also in the scene itself, they're going to react. If it's raining, they're going to react to that setting, things like that. And that's one great way to describe the setting is just how your character reacts to it. And he says, second, as you're creating your setting, think of how your setting may impact the plot as your character interacts with it. So you might think about how can your setting actually get in the way of the plot. And I think I think of the Lord of the Rings when they're trying to get to Mordor, but they're going through marshes and razor sharp rocks of Imminwil and all of these things that the setting is itself an obstacle and it's getting in the way. And that can really add tension to the plot. And I think that's kind of what he's talking about here. And then his third advice is to give your setting a history and a future to not think of it as a stagnant place. For instance, if your characters come across a ruin, you might want to give that ruin a history. You don't necessarily have to bring that into the story and, you know, have a character say, oh, well, such and such tower has been here since 1408 of the third, you know, but you can, you can give it just enough of a flair that the readers know that there is history here. And I think, again, going back to the Lord of the Rings, we see this a lot. Anytime that the characters come across a, a ruin of any kind, we know that there's a history there. In fact, very often we know specifically for the Tolkien nerds out there, things like Weathertop, where Frodo gets stabbed by the ring ringwraiths. That place has a full history that Tolkien outlined. And he didn't necessarily do it all at once, although Tolkien was pretty heavy-handed with explaining his setting because that's really what he was into but that's one of the great things about the lord of the rings is that this it was a living breathing setting and it had a history and it had a future so i thought that was great advice next we're getting into characters building characters specifically and he says most hair authors have one or two blind spots in their characterization i know that's definitely true of myself uh, characters i think is maybe a weak point and he says, for example, when I was young, I wrote my first novel and my editor called up and asked, what is your heroine wearing on page 186? I thought a moment and answered, clothes. And this is definitely a trap that I've fallen into. I often have no idea or don't care what a character is wearing. Like if it's not important to the plot, I often don't even think about it. And this is something that I should, uh, I should definitely focus on more. But he does say that it, you can't just be spending you know, pages and pages cataloging everything that every character is wearing. And one of the ways you can get around that is just sort of bringing it up like they brush their tunic or or one character looks at another and, and just thinks about, you know, observes what they're wearing. And so it doesn't seem too out of, out of sorts. But we definitely can get overbogged with the details. And so he says, the important thing to think about is, is this basic idea, which is stories aren't about characters so much as they are about growth. In other words, your character will change and grow throughout a novel, and it isn't necessarily the character herself that is interesting, but that process of change. And if you're writing a story, consider the growth or changes that your character will be required to go through and then compose a, sen a sentence or two describing that moment when your character changes from what he was to what he will be. And so this is what's really important is not describing every single little detail, but describing the things that are important to this concept of change. 
So, for instance, you might have a character who, at the, when at the beginning when you see them, is unshaven. He's very unkempt and just scraggly and gross. And by the end of a scene or a couple scenes later, you'll describe him as being clean shaven. And, and you know, that creates a story because that is a change. So things like that. He also mentions this with villains. Very often villains are stagnant. But you want to give villains even a chance for this change to face certain choices and to make decisions, moral decisions based on those. So not everything he does is just evil for the sake of evil. And this is basically the idea behind a basic character arc, right? It's change. The more you can have this character growth, this character arc in your characters, in as many characters as you can, it doesn't have to be a big thing, but the the more you can do that, the more your audience will really latch onto those characters. Now, obviously we have a lot more than just one character most of the time in a story. And one of the things that we can often fall into the trap of doing is getting too many characters. So how do you know how many characters you need? And basically what he says is that you want to basically cast them into roles, much like you would a play or a film. You would cast a character into those roles. And so he gives what some of these roles are and the and the purpose that they serve within the story. Obviously, first you have your protagonist. This is the hero, the person who you're focusing on the most. And will probably have your strongest character arc as you're going forward. And of course he gives examples like your Luke Skywalker, Frodo Baggins, Harry Potter. Then you have your antagonist. Probably the most, the second most common character. And this is your uh, Emperor, your Dark Lord Sauron, your Voldemort. Right? Then you have the guide. Most of us are familiar with the guide. This is the Gandalf, uh, Dumbledore, Obi-Wan Kenobi figure. Kind of a cliche at this point, but a lot of stories have this guide character, even though it's not as obvious as, say, Gandalf. Then you have, you start to get into some of the other ones that we might be less familiar with. The first one that I thought was interesting was the contagonist. Now, the contagonist is the character who's usually allied with the antagonist but very often also allies himself or herself with the protagonist, usually in a way in a way to kind of undermine that person or to get to know them or to help them fall. An example would be Barty Crouch Jr. as Professor Moody in Harry Potter. Or you might even say a character like Gollum or Darth Vader in Star Wars. These are the examples that he gives. So someone who's kind of not really working on the side of right but is uh but is still very much involved with the story and i think a lot of these characters end up being some of the more interesting ones because they often have an apparent conflict and we often gravitate a lot towards these characters next we have the sidekicks these are the probably the majority of the the other good characters that we see these are your people like uh, han solo Princess Leia, Chewbacca, the robots, and in Lord of the Rings, we got Sam, Mary Pippin, Legolas, basically everyone in the Fellowship. Harry's got Ron, Hermione, Hagrid, and these are the people that support the protagonist at one point or another, and they can bleed into some of these other roles. For instance, um, the love interest, which he brings up, uh, which is often usually the romantic love interest, 
there doesn't have to be a romantic love interest. You look at Star Wars, Princess Leia was kind of introduced as a love interest, but uh, we all know how that went. So Luke ends up finishing the the original Star Wars trilogy without any love interest. So that's an example of one. Uh, Frodo in The Lord of the Rings doesn't really have a love interest. So then we get the hecklers or the henchmen. And these are also usually on the side of bad. These are the people who whose job it is to basically get in the protagonist's way. And they work for the antagonist in some some way or another. These are your orcs and trolls and goblins. But if you're looking for at specific people um, in Harry Potter, you've got people like Crabbe and Goyle and Malfoy. And of course, all of the Death Eaters. And so they're basically kind of the cannon fodder for the protagonist. The people he goes up against. So he's not always going up against the usually more powerful villain. And lastly, he's got the Temptress. Now, this is not necessarily a person who tempts the hero, at least not a literal temptress. In Star Wars, this is the dark side. In The Lord of the Rings, this is the ring. And it's there's just usually a person or an object or some situation where the hero is tempted to veer from the path that he has chosen in the story. And so that's what the, the role that the temptress plays. So getting back to the question of how to deal with a overly large cast of characters, he says there are real advantages to writing a book with a diverse cast. For one thing, you can attract a wide audience, male, female, old and young. And obviously you do that by casting those types of roles in in your different characters in your story. And some stories do this very well. They've got huge casts of characters. If you look at Game of Thrones or The Wheel of Time, you'll see this happening a lot. Uh, but the problem that people often run into is like you, you run into questions like, will the readers remember who each character is? Will they connect with everybody? And will they just connect with maybe one character too much and skip all the rest? And these are problems that you run into. I feel like in epic fantasy where you see this happening a lot, there's often an understanding that there is a learning curve. And the people that get into epic fantasy are often in it for the long haul. And so uh, you can kind of get away with a little more of this, more world building, more characters. But yes, that, that does create some problems for the majority of novels. So he does say that one way... So he does say that one way to solve this problem is simply to narrow your focus to just a few characters. Now, this isn't this doesn't mean you get rid of characters. It just means you narrow down your viewpoints. So you only have maybe three or four characters who you actually write from their perspective. And the way you do this is by very carefully choosing uh, which of your protagonists uh, and other characters are most important to the plot. I once had this described as you should pick the characters who have the most to lose and i thought that was a really interesting take that's not in this this novel but that's just something i remember reading or hearing at one point also you need to look at every single character and see does this person really need to be a part of the story because everything has to service the story in some way it has to either move the plot along 
or help the protagonist grow or establish some other part of the story. If it doesn't do that, then it doesn't, it's not necessary. We don't really need to go on that side quest looking at this, you know, young little boy or, or whatever. Next, we have to kind of figure out how to indicate to the reader which characters are the most important because you can still have a whole lot. But do we know that like we clearly have an understanding that a protagonist is a more important character than a random merchant that we meet. So we need to let those characters know or let the readers know who of those characters are important. And we can do that by, for example, viewpoint characters are obviously going to be important. That's why it's important to select who those are and only have a few. And then usually any character who has a given name is usually that's clues that's a clue to the reader that they are going to be important some way now there are reasons why this might not be all the time for instance i was just talking to a member of my writing group and one of her characters was looking at a bunch of other people playing a game and was saying all of their names now none of their these people were that important to the plot but there's no way that in this particular situation that this character would not know their names and if he knew their their names then he would use them and so that's one example where we use the names but in general this is a good rule of thumb if you're giving a character a name they're going to be more important at least than a character without a name also any characters who are powerful become important and any character that is put through extreme pain is important any character who is extremely likable or is struggling to do the right thing, these are also reasons why a reader will latch onto these characters and see them as important. So I thought that was interesting. Then, of course, he talks about once you have your cast, you need to make sure your readers don't forget who they are. And there are a couple of ways to do this. Now, this is not mentioned in the book, but one of the pieces of advice that I have received is that every character should start with a different letter of the alphabet. So you never have two characters in the same book that have the same starting letter of the alphabet because people will often skim over the full name, especially if it's a fantasy name or something like that. And they'll just see the first letter and kind of identify the character as that first letter. I did kind of cheat on this a little bit when I was writing my Fairy Queen series because I was drawing from names that were previously sourced in, a, in, a, in an older text. And so I just didn't want to change the name. So I continue to use some of them. But that is something to keep in mind that you might be subtly confusing readers that way. So David also talks about not going too long before you visit each viewpoint character. And if you've gone, say, 40 pages without seeing a character at some point, that might have been too long and the reader might have forgotten about them. So that's something to keep in mind. You can also keep the characters together physically. And if you do that, that's one way to keep the reader's attention on them. He also talks about giving each character a memorable trait. Uh, this could be behavior, like maybe they have a limp or something that is physically distinguishable, like they have a red trench coat, things like that. And I, I see this a lot with Brandon Sanderson, who is David Farland's student. Uh, a lot of his characters have really weird and quirky just little things about them that make them very interesting. And he uses this a lot for humor as well. And then, of course, he says, make sure your protagonists have a great complete arc and that each scene with these characters end with a powerful hook. And that's basically what he's got on character. Now he gets into writing themes, which this, as far as I was able to tell, was not part of his 
initial broad categorization. Maybe you could fit it in with conflict. I'm not sure. Uh, in fact, I think he does fit it in with conflict because he starts out by saying that every story is an argument. And that's this is actually the first time I really got the idea of what a theme is, was reading David Farland's advice on theme. I kind of just thought that a theme was just this sort of ethereal, nebulous thing that maybe people discuss or was brought out in the action of a story. I never really had an idea of what theme was. And I like what he gets into here is that a theme is simply an intellectual argument played out in the deeds, thoughts, and discussions of your characters. And I love this definition. I remember, now this is probably not the best example, but I remember the first time I remember seeing a good example of this was reading Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. One of the things I noticed as a younger reader when I read that was that every single character in the Da Vinci Code was there to argue a different point of view. You had one person arguing for uh, one angle, one person arguing for another. You had one character whose job it was to kind of not know anything so that everything could be explained to her. And then you had one guy who was kind of the in-between person balancing all of the different arguments. And... While that I wouldn't necessarily describe the Da Vinci Code as having a powerful theme, that is essentially what theme is. It's it's an idea that you're exploring through the minds of different characters. So you can have one character arguing one way, one character arguing another way. And I thought that was a really good way of, of putting it. And I think that this is the difference between stories that have powerful themes that really make you think and stories that just sound preachy. The ones that sound preachy are the ones that are really just arguing the theme from one perspective, like there isn't any other perspective. There's always another perspective, even if it's something you vehemently disagree with. As a writer, it's our job to really try to dig deep into those things, try to understand the opposite perspective, even if we still disagree with it, and find a way to make that manifest in the text. And I thought that was a really powerful way of exploring what a theme is. And that's really all I'm going to say about that. He does have a, more to say about it. But I, I just thought that that simple idea was really the part that that uh, really resonated with me the most. All right. Now we're getting into plotting tools that he talks about. And these are ways to basically add tension or conflict to your scene. And in his... According to David Farland, it's one of the things that, if applied to the story, will almost always make it better. So that's interesting. So let's go and look at what some of these are. The first is a time bomb. A time bomb is really just a time limit, a deadline by which some action in a story must fail or succeed. And I tried to do this in my first Fairy Queen book. I'm not sure I succeeded that well, but this is something that occurred to me while I was halfway through writing the book. In the book, my two main characters are on a journey to get from one place to another. And I realized halfway through writing it that there was really no rush. Like they could they could just go off and do whatever they wanted for as long as they wanted. They could go raise an army. They you know, they could go find someone else who was more powerful to help them out on their quest. And there was really no reason to get to this place now. And so I added a uh, a, a mechanic that made it so that they had to get there by a certain day 
And if they didn't, then they would lose their opportunity for a very, very long time. And I think that helped, but I'm not sure, you know, but we'll see. But he does mention that a story about a kidnapping wouldn't be much of a story if it didn't have a deadline where the hostage would be killed. And that's definitely true. So time bombs, a great way to add urgency to your plot. Another plot device is the dilemma, which he says is one of the most powerful plotting devices is to present your protagonist with a dilemma. A dilemma occurs when the protagonist is presented with two equally displeasing choices. This is one area where writers could maybe learn a bit from video games. There are a lot of video games out there that will give you multiple choices on how to deal with a certain situation and you have to choose between them and very often they are not good. Uh, neither of them are really great choices. They all have their drawbacks. And you'll see this a lot in role-playing games, uh, which are my favorite type of game. And so if you want to learn more about the dilemma, I recommend looking into some of those. Then you have your crucible. Now, a crucible in real life is a container where you melt metal together. And so in fiction, a crucible is any setting, condition, or relationship that keeps characters, such as the protagonist and an antagonist, from splitting apart. So these can be just situations or settings where people who would not normally choose to be together are forced to be together. And this adds conflict. It adds tension. It's a very great way to generate those things. Next, we have reversals. He says, one of the most common plotting tools used in Hollywood is the reversal. You've seen it a thousand times. You're at the high point of a movie and it appears that the hero is about to make good. Suddenly the villain shows up and everything goes astray. And we definitely see this in Hollywood all the time. And I would say it's kind of cliche, but it's actually like I wouldn't say it's a bad thing. I'd say we see it all in t- all the time because it works and it really needs to be that way, honestly. But you look at almost any movie and right when things seem to be going well, Something happens and it just all goes wrong. This is when Darth Vader shows up on Cloud City, things like that. And we see it all the time and it's basically something that is baked into our expectations of plot. All right, next we've got Revelations. And he says, you've seen the Revelation in stories a hundred times as well. In a romance novel, a rustic hero may finally have a moment near the end of the novel where he tells the girl why his heart is broken. And this is just an opportunity to really get to understand your characters a lot more. I'd say particularly your villain. And this is often why you have those cliche monologues for villains, right? But if you do it right, this is a great opportunity to really get to understand your villain uh, or other characters because this happens with everybody. But he gives an example of his own family. And my goodness, David Farland had a very interesting family. His father was unfortunately abusive. But as he learned more about his grandfather, who turns out was a mobster, the more he learned about that and the way his father dealt with it, the more he was able to understand his father and the reasons for his father's shortcomings. It's an unfortunate situation, of course. Uh, I but honestly, I'm just kind of glad that David Farland turned out reasonably normal. He was able to channel all of that into his writing, but it was one of those key revelations for him about his grandfather and about his father that really helped him understand. And it's stuff like that, that you want to put into your novel. We have a few more of these plot devices, but we are not going to get the, into them today because we are done with the amount of reading that we planned for this week so next week we are starting halfway through section two with emotional twists with that we will go 
all the way to the end of section two, and I will see you then. Thank you so much for reading with me. Of course, if you want to follow along, go to the Facebook group where we have that we have set up. It's called The Author's Journey, just like this podcast, and interact with us there. Can't wait to talk to you then, and I will see you next time. Thank you for joining us on The Author's Journey. Join us next time as we continue our exploration of great books on craft. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.